Welcome to Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. In this podcast, I chat to athletes, coaches, and industry professionals about their sporting journey and the lessons they've learned along the way. Guests range from Olympians to the everyday lover of sport, but the message stays the same. There is so much more to sport than what meets the eye. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify so you don't miss the release of each new episode. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. I'd love to hear from you. Today we are joined by Cam Elliott, a performance coach who looks beyond the athlete in front of him to the human that's behind the athlete. My chat with Cam is split into two parts, with this first part exploring what Cam does, how he got into the world of performance coaching and his motivation behind doing it. Before we get started, I'd just like to thank each and every listener for tuning into the podcast. I hope you're not only enjoying the content, but also feeling heard with some of the experiences that each one of the amazing guests brings. In saying that, make sure you head over to Instagram and give the page a follow at Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. This is where you can find exclusive behind the scenes content, as well as a sneaky picture or two of my Labrador puppy, Harry. If you have any feedback, topic or guest suggestions, send it through to me there. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, that's enough from me. Let's hear from Cam. Uh, so uh, I work in the sport performance industry as a performance coach, but it's it's the same, same, but different, I guess, to what everyone else does. Uh, I don't necessarily subscribe to the belief that a lot of my uh, colleagues and peers do in the industry that um, stronger is better. A lot of my, uh, I guess, the principles of my job or the principles of my business are based around better is better. So I, I help people chase quality because I understand that the resources that they may be dedicating to their training could be taking away from other areas in their life. Mm-hmm. And quite often I see that with athletes that I work with, that their whole identity is born around the sport that they play or the sport that they participate in. And it can be quite confronting for them when they when they come up against some sort of hurdle, roadblock or obstacle that they can't overcome that impedes them from, from doing the job or doing the, the sport that they love. And then, you know, as we touched on before, before you hit record, then they have a, a self versus self identity crisis moment. Mm-hmm. So my, my job as a performance coach is to teach people how to regulate their intensity. So, you know, let's say you've got five gears in your gearbox on average, and I'm going to throw an arbitrary number out there on average, 99.99% of all athletes spend all of their time in gears four and five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's very rare to meet an athlete that knows how to spend time in gears one and two. Uh, and that's not just in training, that's in everyday life. They don't know how to slow down. They don't know how to uh, sit quietly with themselves and breathe and just be happy to do that. They have to be engaged in something, which is on some levels, on, a, on, a, on some spectrum, a, a high-functioning form of ADHD or ADD. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a lot of athletes in, in this current generation. They're, they're born into a world where there's lights and there's sounds and it's all happening in their hands. It's all happening in front of their eyes. Uh, my job as a performance coach is to help people understand and regulate their intensity, not just from you know day to day, but across macro cycles, which could be uh, based around an event. So we might be still training for something specific. Let's take endurance sport, for example, because I have a lot of endurance athletes. We might have an event in November. We, we might have a Melbourne Marathon in, in, in September or November or whatever. So between now and November, we need to learn how to regulate 
our intensity so that we can get the most out of every single training session and we're not burning out and missing out on a training session. And that might look like for a female athlete, that might look like having a three-month strength-based macro cycle where we're, we're working on a lot of strength that we've been building off of from a block before. But within that three months, we've also got to be considerate of three menstrual cycles to go through, which create their own little micro cycle within mm-hmm. that macro cycle. And then we also have to consider work, work-related stress, home and home-related stress, uh, relationships and relationship-related stresses, uh, whether they're eating enough food, whether they're eating too much food or not enough, uh, whether they're drinking enough water, uh, whether they like to socialize with alcohol, like you know, if, if they're someone that needs alcohol in order to feel um, socially validated within a, within a group of people. These are all factors and cofactors that go into what I do as a job. And when I help people see where they're investing all of their resources into, which might be, for example, I'll be investing all their resources into training, but not enough into recovery. Recovery encompasses sleep, food, hydration, and just being able to sort of chill the hell out, maybe watch some TV and not feel guilty about it. When I show them that they're dedicating all their resources to training and not enough to recovery, if they then choose to continue down the path that they're continuing, then their diminishing returns can't be blamed on anyone but themselves. But what I can do is manipulate the training the resources that they're dedicating don't change, but the training load changes based on me. Mm-hmm. I can manipulate the resources there. And then they start to have that self first self crisis identity where they say, I'm not working hard enough. And yet objectively on paper, I can show them that they're actually performing better uh, in the gym or whether they're training outside of the gym. And then they have to have that confronting moment where they go, oh, well, maybe, maybe I don't know as much as I know about myself, my sport, my training, maybe I need to start learning a little bit more and leaning into that, or they have a complete backflip and then they have a, a crisis implosion, mm-hmm. like a self versus self implosion. Uh, and then I'm there to help put those pieces together as well. So that's essentially my, my job as a performance coach, helping change the way people think about what they do and how they do it rather than just changing the way they train, changing the way they eat, changing the way they recover. Because uh, if someone doesn't understand the why, then they're not going to appreciate the the what and the how. Mm-hmm. And if they know why, then they'll know when, which is a really important uh, principle that I take into my job. If you understand the principle behind a behavior and why we're doing it, then you'll understand when to prescribe that dosage or have that dosage prescribed for you. Uh, and I got into that. So I've been, in, I've been in the industry, the health and fitness industry, probably 10 years. And I started out probably more so like for selfish reasons, because I was just, I was really unhappy with my health and my own performance. Um, and I was living a bit of a catch 22 at the time. You know, I was, I was self-conscious of my body, so I didn't go to the gym, but I wanted to go to the gym because I was self-conscious of my body, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, that was, that was challenging for me. And that was my self for self where for a long time I thought, I don't care how I look, but it got to a point where I started to think it's not about going to the gym because of how I look, but it's, but it's important to start doing some sort of um, formal training because that's going to impact my health. And then there's going to be a follow-on effect of how I will perceive my, my body composition to look. So I got into it for some selfish and, and vain reasons. But when I started out, I realized how deep the rabbit hole went and I, I've always been attracted to you know, that rabbit hole concept. Like I, I love to know why I love to pull stuff apart and, and figure out how it works, whether I can put it back together or not. Like <laughs> I just love being able to figure out how something works. 
and, and I reverse engineer a lot of things that way. And that's how I learn. So I started this big rabbit hole as just a standard certificate, three and four personal trainer. Then I just started to dive into the world of um, sports performance, specifically around recovery. My interests took me down the road of like physiology and how exercise can manipulate physiology and also anatomy. And I really fell in love with anatomy and biomechanics. I, I pretty much put myself through a uh, four-year Bachelor of Exercise Sports Science degree. And I did that in about a year. And then I got myself into a position in Moorabbin at a place called Woodford Sports Science Consulting, which, you know, at the time was, was a big deal for me because I was not a graduate, a bachelor's graduate, but had all the knowledge and all I needed was the practical sort of experience. So I put myself like right out there and knocked on their door and said, Hey, you know, you guys have a mentorship program available. I'd love to be considered. I'm currently coaching. Here's my coaching portfolio. It's nothing too special. By the way, I'm just a PT cert three and four. I haven't done any bachelors. Uh, and they said, yeah, look, we'll give you a chance. And the thing that I found was that all of the second and third year you know, bachelor students that I met in the program, none of them had practical experience. And because of that, none of them had the context to apply their theoretical knowledge, which meant that none of them understood any of the content that they just learned over a three year of their bachelors, which I found bizarre i was i couldn't believe it like you know i don't have any hair, but at the time i was pulling my hair out i'm like, you to be kidding me how do you not understand this stuff it's so simple and that was when it sort of revealed itself to me you know we talked about that veil of ignorance that was when the veil of ignorance started to be lifted off my eyes and i realized people only know what they know mm-hmm. and they won't know enough if they don't apply the things that they think they know and learn whether or not they're right and so i just i just dedicated my entire career to that it was just Everything that I, I picked up, whether it was evidence-based or not, I was playing with it as if it was a tool in my own hands and, and thinking about how I could shape that tool or, or shape the challenge to fit any individual in front of me. And what that did was create a very broad and diverse toolbox. And then as the years went by, you know, I, I managed to um, acquire some really great opportunities in the industry through places like Virtus Performance in Mornington and even, you know, uh, Rapid Athlete Development in Ballarat, which is uh, another place that I've sowed my seeds Um, and Woodford's as well, which was a great opportunity at the time. And from all of that, it's, it's led me to meeting great people like Rachel, who's then introduced me to yourself and, and you're doing great things as well with your podcast. You've interviewed some cool people who, you know, all share their own stories, the thing that I do for a job, I guess, uh, to sort of bring it back around is I take all of those people. I don't look at them as individual personalities. I look at them as humans first. So they're a human before they're an athlete. I interact with the human side and I'm able to, I guess, shape somebody's physiology rather than just bash my head against their psychology. So I, I speak to somebody's nervous system rather than speaking to their ego. Mm-hmm. And then I let their ego figure out if this is where they want to be. Are they ready for them to say, to see that they might be dedicating too much or, or not enough resources into one thing. If they are, we're going to get along really well and they're going to get some significantly big gains in a very short amount of time. If they're not ready for that, that's totally fine, but I can already sort of usually tell off the bat whether we're going to be um, compatible as like sort of a coach slash athlete or even just mentee mentor. And from there, I'm able to either 
prescribe some stuff and help people get better or refer them on to somebody that could probably do a better job than me. Uh, someone that might be a little bit more nurturing or somebody that might be a little bit more um, socially engaging. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's what I do as a job. I, I suppose I, I engineer stress and I, I try to break people down to build them back up again, but I, mm-hmm. I try not to do it in a way that makes me sound like I'm a, a psychological terrorist. <laughs> yeah, you're not cruel. <laughs> I, I get no joy. Yeah, I get, I get no joy from making people either work hard or feel shit about themselves. But sometimes it's important to make someone aware, you know, of just how foolish they might be. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned at the start the fact that, you know, it's the self versus self and, you know, the ego comes into it and it's who am I? outside of the sport you know if I'm not for example I went through it with swimming like if I'm not a swimmer who am I and I remember there was a few years that I was struggling like am I a swim teacher am I a swim coach like all those things were still in swimming and so it took you know a trip to Europe to go oh no you know I'm a daughter I'm a granddaughter I'm a I was a girlfriend but now I'm a fiance like I'm a sister I'm a dog mom like those things all play an impact into your sport and your performance yeah, that your personality is not single, um, like a single track. It's multifaceted. And when you can start to really appreciate the multiple facets that make up, you know, the quote unquote unique diamond that you are, you start to find a lot more peace in the journey, you mm-hmm. know, with a capital J. And you start you start loving the journey, regardless of whether or not you f- you feel you're making progress or not. And that's been my journey for the last 10 years. It's been a lot of lows, but there's been just as many highs. It's harder to see the highs when all you do is get stuck in the lows. Yeah. But, you know, I don't sit there and, and look back and think, oh man, I wish I'd done these things differently. I just learn from them and, I, and it helps me move forward. Those are the facets that make up, you know, the cam that's sitting here. And I hope in five years time, if we were to have this conversation again, I'd be a completely different cam mm-hmm. because I'd hope that in between now and five years time, I'm making mistakes, breaking some bones. I'm ruining friendships. I'm making new friendships just so that I can continue to cultivate the garden of my, of my coaching and my clinical experience so that others can, can come and reap the fruit of that garden. Uh, and that's an important, you know, that's an important part of the process when it comes to that self first self. If all your identity is tied into the one thing, which in, you know, in terms of the athlete might be the sport, uh, like is a great example. There's a 16 year old uh, junior footballer that I'm that I was working with. I'm not anymore, but I was working with, and he had an injury. He's never been injured, and he's playing great footy. He's never been injured. He had to have surgery on his shoulder, and his dad was saying, "Hey, we, you know, here's the things that I want him to be doing." And I could kind of tell from the get go that the the athlete, the young man, wasn't engaged. He didn't he didn't want to go through this. He, what he needed was to step away from football. I can say that, but what he needed was to step away from football and kind of just come to terms with the fact that for the first time in 16 years, he can't use his shoulder for the thing that he's used to be able to use his shoulder. He can't even wipe his ass Mm. because it's his right arm. He can't do things. He can't write. He can't wipe his butt. He can't play video games, whatever it is. He can't do those things. And it's not just the football. It's the whole identity of this person being challenged by one shoulder which I was very grateful for internally, but I had to be kind of nurturing as well. And it was, a, you know, all I did was just take him through the process. We did some assessments. We did some, um, some rehab. The shoulder came good. I was really happy with it. Everything was going along. And then his dad one day messaged me and said, hey, uh, he doesn't want to play footy anymore. And he was gutted. And I was like, yeah, I understand that that's going to be really hard for you to, to come to terms with. But that, you know, that's not, it's not for his father to decide. Mm. But 
was the father messaging me saying, oh, I'm shattered. I'm gutted. I don't know what to do. So, you know, even though there's this self first self, there's also a lot of external pressures that get put on the self potentially from other people. But at the end of the day, you know, one of my more proudful moments was, was seeing this young man go through his rehab. He did everything right. Uh, his identity was challenged and he kind of came to the, the conclusion that uh, maybe I just want to take a bit of a break from, from footy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was, what year is it? 2021. This was two and a half years ago. And now he's back playing footy and he's crushing it. Like he's loving it, right? Well, not this year, but uh, he was playing some good footy. And all from that little hiatus, I think it's reinvigorated the, the spark in him again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's going to be able to enjoy the sport rather than pursue the potential career that he was being pigeonholed into, which was, hey, I really want my son to play AFL. Mm-hmm. And I kind of got the feeling that the son didn't want to play AFL, but I wasn't allowed to say that. All I could do was just provide an opportunity for him to come in and express himself, um, feel comfortable, meet new people. And eventually it turned out that he, he wanted to pursue his own thing and he's been doing that for a few years, but now he's playing footy and he's enjoying footy and he's enjoying it with a healthy shoulder, mm-hmm. which is great. So, you know, in that instance, I, I didn't just make an athlete get better. Uh, I did it for the future tense, but if he'd never gone back and played football, I, I built robust function in a human that's now able to pursue whatever the hell he wants with a, even if he wants to go fishing, he can go fishing, mm-hmm. but he's going to do it with a healthy shoulder. And that I feel like opened up more opportunities for him. If I just focused on getting him football ready, it's a missed opportunity for a lot of people in this industry where they get stuck in this sort of narrow tunnel where it's like, okay, Fiona's a swimmer. She can't swim. Let's get her back to swimming. Like, well, mm-hmm. hang on. Fiona's not a swimmer. Fiona's a human. And as you said, she's a daughter. She's a sister. She's a, she's a, a granddaughter. All these <laughs> things matter. And when you take them into account, it doesn't matter how many reps or sets they do in the gym. As long as you're not taking away from their ability to perform all these other things outside of the gym. If you're taking away from their ability to do that, you are not making them a better athlete. You are making them a worse human, mm-hmm. which then makes them a worse athlete because you take the sport away. And we see what happens with elite level athletes, you take their sport away and they go off the rails. They lose it. They stick on a bunch of weight. If they are around the sport anymore, they lose their identity. That happens to a lot. So yeah, my, my job, I guess, is to try and to try and set up some fail safes or some, some foundations for people so that they have something to fall back on, which is themselves. They can always fall back on themselves and just be content with that. Yeah. And I really like that, you know, you're not just developing the sport and the performance. That's a byproduct. You're developing the human behind it. And that's, I get like, I followed you for years. And that's the thing that I really liked about your philosophy or your ethos is the fact that, you know, you didn't see the athlete in front of you, you saw the human in front of you. And I think that's very, very, very special. Now, was there like a a moment that you went through that made you want to go into that side of it? Or was it it just naturally progressed? Like, how did that happen? I think it was more natural. Uh, it definitely started like, you know, industry, I started for those selfish reasons because I was, was really invested in, in just refining the self. But then I fell off that pretty quickly because, you know, I, I feel like a lot of PTs get into the industry and they get exposed to the, the stock standard bodybuilding mentality, which is a lot of reps, and we're trying to look as good as we can naked and eat a lot of food, one portion of it, and then cut a lot of food out so that you can shed a whole bunch of weight. Like that's, that's the typical sort of PT mentality when you get into it. But the more I learned about physiology, the more I learned about how, um, how cells express themselves because they express themselves, you know, they have their own 
in a weird way, they have their own personalities. You know, there mm-hmm. are different cells within your body that have their own personalities, which is why when you cut your leg, an ear doesn't grow there. It's more leg skin. You know, when you cut your ear, more ear skin. But interestingly, you can grow an ear on your leg. The body can remodel itself in really unique ways. So these unique personalities within the cells can be manipulated through exercise. And then it took me into this really deep, you know, it's still deep and it's going to be deep forever, this deep uh, rabbit hole around performance. And I started to get really invested in the strength side of things because that was, you know, kind of my, uh, my, my, my toe dipping moment was, was based around strength. And the more I started chasing strength for myself, the, the, the more I realized that it, w- it wasn't the appropriate prescription for myself, even though I got wicked strong. Like, you know, I, I was probably at my strongest, but I was also like physically, but I was also at my weakest psychologically, and physiologic, uh, physiologically. I, I was sore all the time. I was chronically tired all the time. I was getting sick every two, three weeks, but I was strong, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and my, my mobility went out the, out the window because I was so sore, I couldn't move. But, you know, I was strong. And that's what people kept coming back to. Yeah, but you're strong. You're strong. You're strong. And I realized, like, I don't, I don't just want to chase strength for the sake of chasing strength. So if that's me, why should I be prescribing strength for the sake of prescribing strength to all of my clientele, specifically if they're athletes? So I started going down that rabbit hole and, and it got me to meeting some wonderful people in the industry like uh, Jamie Smith from Melbourne Strength Culture, who's been a great friend and mentor of mine and then I started to learn about macro and micro dosing strength uh, and utilizing different strength protocols to to get the same effect but you're you're, because you're changing the dose it's changing the, the byproduct as well so if you're not chasing load you don't just have to prescribe a whole bunch of volume you know you can you can uh, micro dose the volume and still be chasing the same amount of volume at the end of the session. And that's going to change the byproduct, which might be someone's not a store, but that's the volume that they needed to get. When I started doing that, I realized, oh my God, like this is the magic pill. You know, people are getting so much stronger, so much, so much faster, so much more powerful and explosive. They're getting so much better and they're doing it so much faster. So that was like a little light bulb moment. And then I just started to constantly think about how I can refine this process. How can I make this better for somebody? How can I make this more efficient for somebody that's never done any of this before, just walked in the door and see, you know, be one of my strong girls who's sitting at around about 65 kilos and she's picking up hundred on a barbell. How can I get somebody to walk in the door and look at her and go, I can do that too, rather than walk in the door, look at her and go, there's no way I could freaking do that, which happened a lot. Mm -hmm. So the more I refine those processes and systems, the more I realized, man, this is easy. It's just a puzzle. And if I can help people put their physiological puzzle together, I'm going to get them to where the people are that they walk in and saw and they're going to get there at their own speed, but they're going to get there efficiently and they're going to get there effectively and safely, which is just as important. Uh, And it means that they're not, they're not spending all their resources on me or on the things that I'm prescribing. If they want to go away for two weeks, they're going to go away for two weeks. And if they want to train, sure, I can write them something up. But if they don't want to train, great. Like have two weeks, go eat a whole bunch of shit food. I don't care what you do. Just understand that there will be consequences physiologically when you come back, mm-hmm. just as if you go away and train, there will be consequences physiologically when you come back. Good or bad, you can skew that however you want, but all I want you to know is that you're always going to be in good hands. If you come back, I'm not going to throw you back into where you were. We're just going to put the floaties on and start waiting out again. When you're ready, we take the floaties off. You're ready to go. But as long as their nervous system was serviced well, I never had a problem. And that 
like changing that, that principle into my business or adopting that principle in my business has been uh, a really big light bulb moment. And that's what's kept me kind of driving into this sector of the, of the industry rather than, you know, there wasn't one moment. It was just a culmination of moments that led to this light bulb that went, oh, duh, you know, don't beat them up. They'll get better. Uh, but again, you know, we talk about the veil of ignorance. As that veil of ignorance got lifted, I looked around me and saw performance coaches a dime a dozen doing the thing that I was just doing, making people sore and sweaty and expecting them to get better at their sport, putting up big strength numbers on their social media pages to attract followers, to attract clients. But I wasn't watching the individual on the social media page perform on the page. I was watching them perform in their sport. And I was mm-hmm. like, they're standing out. They're not doing things that you know, you're expressing that they're doing in the gym. So either your program isn't working or this person's not able to express the performance that you're cultivating when I you know, started delving a little bit more into that, I realized, well, maybe it's because we're just, we're just making people sore and sweaty uh, to make ourselves look better, you know, like the PTs and the performance coaches look better. So that was a very eye-opening moment. And it really made me you know, step away from a lot of the social media stuff and a lot of the self-driven marketing. To That's not one specific moment. It's just been a culmination of moments that have, have helped me shape that path and i hope that yeah as we as i said i hope it it changes again in five years you know i hope that there's something different in five years as well that makes me think about it differently yeah oh i like that because you're growing and you're always changing that perception and growing with it and and then you're helping with the performance but yet like again it's not just the person and their performance it's the human behind it and you're helping them grow. Like I really, really, yeah, that whole ethos, absolutely love it. Challenging ethos though to get across because it doesn't sell well, you know, like imagine if I was to go to a, I don't know, a parent teacher night at a, uh, at a school and say, Hey, everybody that's an athlete, I want you to invest in my method because I teach your, your child how to love their body, how to love themselves. They might not get better at their sport. Mm. even though they want to get better at their sport, they will only get better at their sport if they feel good and confident about their body and they're able to move with a modicum of, of freedom and some, and some strength. But if they don't want to get good at the sport, if they don't want to invest hours and hours a week of practicing at the sport, they're not going to get better. Who wants to invest in that? People are going to go, nah. but then you have <laughs> someone else come along and say, look at all these athletes that I've helped get into, you know, insert sport here. Mm. And then, you know, you've got parents knocking on the door saying, hey, I really want my child to work with you, which is great. Don't get me wrong. I love it because I know some great coaches that do that and they do it really, really well. But if they're not human-minded, they're just athlete-minded, the mm-hmm. parents, then that doesn't necessarily set them up for social success when their identity is challenged as an athlete. And that's challenging. And it's typically those athletes that end up coming to me they get that, you know, it's their parents knocking on my door saying, Hey, such and such said that you helped such and such with such and such. And then I get this kid come in who's hollow eyed and doesn't know what they want to do with themselves. And I'm sitting here having to help put the pieces together thinking this could have been avoided. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead we've got a kid who's had their whole identity challenged. And now we've got to help, help find something that makes them feel special again because they don't have it and they might want to go back to their sport they might not but i've got a parent that's now relying on me to help get their kid back to playing sport and go back to the example of that young man who wanted to play football you know he didn't want to play football he was only playing football because his old man wanted him to play football now he's playing football because he wants to play football and he's killing it Mm -hmm. but 
back then he was great at football, but he was only playing it because someone else wanted him to. That is the challenge for me. It's to teach people that, you know, there's more to them than just the sport. And even if they play a hundred different sports, like I played heaps of sports. I was never great at any one sport. I was good at everything. And that is still true to this day. Like I'm not great at any one thing. I'm just good at everything because I've had a really broad and rich movement experience and sporting experience. I can go out and I can kick the football with my partner or I can go out and kick the football with a team full of AFL players. I'm going to be able to kick the football regardless. I might not be the best kick, but I can still kick the football and have a look around with everybody there. And I've still got something to teach either my partner when it comes to kicking football or that team of AFL players when it comes to thinking about themselves in a little bit of a different way. So it, yeah, it's all about like taking the experience and shaping it for everybody. And you can only really do that if you're, if you're able to step out of the identity that either, you know, you've pigeonholed yourself into or others have pigeonholed you into. And uh, that's where the magic happens. Yeah. And I guess I'm going to be a bit nosy uh, and ask like, don't you dare. (laughs) Was there, was there a moment like you were pigeonholed into something and you had to have that crisis and pull yourself out so that you could then teach that to others and help, you know, others deal with that? It was, but I pigeonholed myself into it. Only rule my parents had a very strict with this was for me and my sister, if, if we wanted to try something new, we stuck it out for at least like a term or a season. Um, so we always gave it a crack for at least a term or a season. So it meant that I was, you know, I was doing some swimming. I was doing some martial arts. I did some football. I did some cricket. I did some soccer. I was always trying stuff out. If I didn't like it, there was no pressure on me to pursue that. And parents were great. They would always buy me the gear for it. And I, I still have a, in their house, I've still got a garage full of all the gear that I <laughs> probably didn't need to purchase. But my parents got genuinely excited about, about our excitement for participating in sport, which, mm-hmm. which I'm very grateful for. In hindsight, there's a part of me that just wished that my dad grabbed me by the back of the neck, dragged me to football training and said, you're playing footy because I'd be a great football player. I know I would be. But at the same time, I wouldn't be me. You know, I wouldn't be the me that I am now. So it's hard to it's hard to quantify that feeling. Instead, I just look at it and go, I'm grateful that I can, like I said, kick the footy with my partner, I'll kick the footy with a team full of football players and not be the worst one there. You know, I'm still able to teach some people some stuff. But when I when I had the big moment, I in in high school, I got bullied quite a lot. And one of the things that I found, uh, I guess, some solace or an escape in was acting, stage theatre. And I like to think that I'm actually quite good at it. But one of the things that I really enjoyed about it was being able to just put on a mask, you know, Mm -hmm. a a figurative mask and adopt a persona or adopt a character. Uh, And that helped me escape reality and it let me become another self or another reality. And some of the things that I thrived at in that environment was making people laugh. I'm going to blow my own trumpet. I have exceptional wit and I have great comedic timing. Not everyone gets it. That's totally fine. But I make myself laugh all the time because of one thing or another. So I love it about myself. And when I'm on stage and you've given me a script and we're in a specific environment, depending on the tone of the, of the performance, I'm able to make you feel something, Mm. but it's, it's false. Like it's a false thing that I'm doing. I'm making you feel something. So it would be no different than me, you know, picking on you right now and making you feel bad. Mm. I'm making you feel something. So I'm manipulating your, your emotional state. And I was doing that stage and I realized I was also doing that off stage as well. That was a self first self moment. I'm actually treating life like a stage and 
I'm making people laugh all the time and it's exhausting because I'm not making me laugh. Uh, I'm making people feel good all the time and feel happy, but I'm not making me feel good or happy. And that was part of me um, getting into, you know, the fitness industry or, or just fitness in general is because I thought, well, where am I going to start? And I started by genuinely having a moment of looking in the mirror and going, I hate what I see, which, you know, was hard at the time, but uh, I'm grateful for that moment because even though it's very negative self-speak, learning that I didn't actually hate myself, that I was actually very afraid of what I saw, but having that moment helped me onto the path I am today, which was great. But yeah, to answer your question, essentially it was just from, you know, it was from acting on stage and then realizing I was still acting off stage as well. All I know is that when I started being a lot more real with myself, I made significantly less friends, but the friends that I did make were solid people, you know, like people that that genuinely got what I was doing and why I was doing it. And they didn't judge me for it, which was great. I really like that. And it's, it's interesting that it came from, you know, something that wasn't sport or sport or fitness related. It came from acting and then it's carried over into your sporting life and that fitness industry, which is great. Cause one of my questions is what's the benefit of being in this industry that transfers over to other avenues, but you've just provided me the other way around, which is really awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's essentially um, one of the big tools that I take with me is that I'm a bit of a social chameleon. Like I can, even though I might not enjoy spending my time with a broad group of people, like a broad demographic of people, there are certain people I just don't gel with, but you'd never know it. You mm-hmm. know, like I can sit in a room full of people and be completely at ease with the ones that I'm talking to, but I can also sit in a room full of people that I don't know, or I don't like their message and not make everyone feel like they're wrong for thinking that and that they should feel uncomfortable that I don't feel comfortable about it. That's a bit of a superpower for me is that, that social sort of chameleonism. I'm able to make people feel comfortable about being themselves. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I didn't realize I needed so much during high school and that I've kind of, you know, adopted and taken with me as a, as a great tool. And it helps because, you know, if you go into a team environment, there are a, a mixing pot of personalities and not everyone gets along. Even on the surface, you know, you can look at elite sport and look at a whole team of professional athletes. And it's no different than a, than a team of professional salesmen. Mm-hmm. Not everyone gets along. And it's the coaching and the leadership staff, leadership groups that help keep everyone on the same path. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm that in a very micro dose. You know, I can sit in a group of people and I can keep people calm or I can get them excited and I can leverage those tools that I learned from performing in order to make everyone feel comfortable. But the caveat to that is that's very exhausting as well. Mm. It's interesting you say that because when I was swimming, I I kind of played that chameleon role or the leadership role and was that person who, you know, maybe brought together the group that wouldn't always get along, if that makes sense. Like Mm. the two very different ones, right, ones left kind of people and be able to do that. But yeah, I completely understand when you say it took a lot out of you and say you weren't feeling well and you didn't give that effort because you didn't have it in you, then you would see the difference. Yeah. I'm a natural leader but I don't enjoy it. And I think that's what makes a good leader is someone that doesn't enjoy it. But at Mm. the same time, there is a really big social pressure that comes with that, that especially in the last few years, I realized I'm just ready to accept. Mm. Like I time and again, I've had that mantle put on me and I end up shirking the responsibility to somebody else. But 
the irony there is that I sit then and judge that person go, Oh, not a good leader, you know, like that's, and that's such a shitty thing to do. But again, I'm, I'm human as well. And, and I have a lot of things to work on for myself, but I, I am acutely aware of my strengths and my weaknesses and a lot of my limitations, which again is another strength of mine um, that I'm, a, that I'm aware of those things uh, and that I'm working on them. But it is a big task to take responsibility for one or more people's health or state and I'll always be a coach regardless of what industry I go into because of these tools. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I definitely need to work on is, is how to manage people better when they don't want to be managed, which is essentially, you know, I've avoided that in my industry by cultivating the people that I work with. I cultivated my garden. If someone doesn't want to work with me, fine. They don't have to work with me. But that doesn't necessarily make me better at leading people that might be a little complicated and might have a differing mindset. Mm-hmm. It just means... I don't have to work as hard managing people. So that doesn't make me a better leader. It just makes me a smarter worker mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm setting myself up for winning. Uh, so that's something that I definitely have to work on. But the flip side to that is that, you know, as you say, when the leader arrives and they're not able to generate the same amount of energy because their battery is a little low, what we as, as society need to be better at doing is, and I just did before and, and we'll make an example of, we shouldn't judge people for that. Because one of the things that I think is so funny with society is that, and it's certainly true in my industry for my job, I could give somebody all of my time and add so much value to their, to their life in that moment. And they might come back in a week's time. And if they, they'll expect the same level of value. And if you give them a drop less, often they'll drop you. They'll say, you know what? I've gotten everything I can out of you because you haven't moved me forward again, like you just did before. And that can be quite challenging to to come to terms with as a coach, when you realize, Hey, I don't think I'm the right person for this um, individual anymore, Mm. the right mentor, the right coach. Uh, And so, you know, this comes to another one of my principles. I'm always trying to add value to people's experience and people's lives, but I always encourage people and all my clients can attest to this. The day I stop adding value, we can have a conversation. And if you're having questions about the journey, I can show you the whole journey mapped out. We'll ride the bumps together. But if you feel like I'm consistently not adding value, feel free to shop around. Like go and have a conversation with another coach. Help come to me. I'll find you another coach. I'll find a clinician that can do the thing that you need or the thing that you're asking for better than me. Because if I'm not able to do it, then I'm not adding value. If I'm not adding value, I'm not doing my job and I love my job. So we, I guess, as a society need to get a little bit more, maybe patient with those that want to step up and have a crack. Uh, and I certainly, you know, am guilty of that. Uh, I'll put my hand up because the days where I don't feel like leading are the days where I feel most judgmental about people that are leading because I'm not focused on the job and I'm focused on what everyone else is freaking doing. Uh, and that is a very typical experience for most people. Yeah, that, it's an interesting social conundrum that, I guess we could dissect for hours, days probably. Yeah. Well, I just need to have dinner and then come back and do it again. Well, we'll table that for another time, I think. Um, <laughs> That's for sure. It's such a can of worms. Yeah, I'm, I'm just like my brain's ticking and my words can't catch up with what my brain's thinking and I don't even know which order they're going to come out in. So I'm just gonna, we're going to table that one. Um, That's me every day. <laughs> and I want to, I guess I want to ask like, 
has there been you've been in the industry for you know 10 years or even in sport before that playing as a junior has there been like a benefit that you've learnt that's transferred over from like cam in the fitness industry or participating in sport to cam the human oh yeah definitely it's learning to appreciate the things i can't do Mm. you know there's uh when we look at wolves which you know they're insanely smart animals the alpha isn't the best wolf at everything the alpha is just really good at managing wolves they sit there and make sure that the strongest and fastest wolves are doing things that strong wolves and fast wolves should do they're not asking the fast wolves to be strong they're not asking the strong wolves to be fast wolves they're utilizing the right tool for the right job so that they don't demoralize the pool i'm really good at ensuring that i don't demoralize myself uh, so there are always plenty of things that I can't do. For example, right now, I can't run 5Ks without feeling like uh, I'm about to die. Mm-hmm. So instead of running 5Ks until I can, I'm just running 1K and I'm getting good at it. And the byproduct of that is getting better at running, period. Because I'm 95 kilos, I'm a heavy guy. I'm not designed to run. I'm mm-hmm. not designed to do a lot. But I am designed to run through a brick wall, I guess. But at the same time, I'm not conditioned for that either. So if I wanted to run 5Ks, let's just get better at running one. That's my mindset when it comes to all problems. Microdose the stimulus so that you can develop some volume over time and you're getting more wins than losses because you're not beating your head against the wall doing this pattern poorly and thinking, fuck, it's getting nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I see it a lot with people that want to take up golf. You know, They'll go down to the driving range and buy, buy a bucket of 50 balls and hit 50 balls and go, golf sucks. Like, you suck. <laughs> You suck at golf, but they'll hit one good ball and go, fuck, golf's awesome. Like, no, that was just a good hit. Now try and do that 50 times and I bet you can't. And that's when people go, I did that one good hit. I haven't another good hit in 30 hits. I'm not playing golf anymore. Mm-hmm. I've learned to leverage those moments for myself where I go, hey, I've got a box, a bucket of 50 balls. I'm going to hit five balls and I'm going to focus on every second ball hitting it in a way that I feel like the last time I hit the ball really well, I'm replicating that. And what I find is I'm hitting every third or fourth ball relatively well, better than what I was doing, but I'm not burning out because I'm not focusing on every single ball. One ball, I might be just swinging the club through and practicing the swing in general. And then another one, I'm focusing on my grip and then I'm just swinging the club and then I'm focusing on my grip, swinging the club. And I'm looking at my shots and going, wow, every two or three shots now is actually relatively good. And hey, that 16th shot was actually really good. And then every one or two shots is a a poor shot. And maybe one shot goes behind rather than five, which is a big win. You look at that over the grand scheme of 50 balls and you think, hey, we've increased our effectiveness by maybe 30%. And we've done it in a really efficient way. I haven't Mm -hmm. worked harder and I haven't focused harder. All I've done is just microdose my attention. Uh, when I learned how to do that for myself, everything became a lot easier to the point where a lot of people comment on how easy it is for me to pick stuff up. They feel it's unfair, which is fair enough. I get that. But I learn everything by just focusing on the principles and it could be anything. It could be a video game, a board game. It could be a sport. It could be uh, a whole new way of looking at physiology. I focus on the principles and think, how can I make the principles fit what I already know? Mm. And as you learn that way, you grow a really solid framework that you can always come back to. And that's why I look at a board game and I look at writing someone a strength program. They're the same thing inherently. It's a problem that you have to solve and there are rules that you have to play within. You have to color in within the lines. When you're an expert at coloring within the lines, 
then you can start to look at changing some of the shades or you can start coloring outside the lights and people will laud you as an artist and you go, <laughs> wow, I didn't really do anything different. I just know the rules. Mm. Once you know the rules, you can break them. Uh, well, that's actually not true. Once you know the rules, you can bend them. If you make the rules, you can break them. But if you know the rules, you can bend them. Uh, and that's what I do now. I, I've got a really broad framework of rules, of principles, and I just bend them all the time. And if, if it's me swinging a golf club or driving a go-kart or running a kilometer, I'm constantly refining what I spend my resources on, what I, what I hone my attention on. And when I get more efficient at that, I learn faster. When I learn faster, my, my nervous system's happy. It gets better at the thing. I get stronger or more powerful or, or more fit, whatever it is. Uh, just from microdosing the attention that I put, the, the intensity that I put into the thing. Mm, that's really interesting. And when you were saying that, the thing that was coming in my head is I've been microdosing when I teach swimming lessons or when I plan swimming programs and things like that. Like that's how I teach it or coach it to the kids is I'll go, okay, you're doing six laps or, or whatever. And I'll get them to do a shorter distance. That's how I'll get them to do it. Like, I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't know that I was doing it until listening to you. Yeah. That, and that's, that's the best way to, to teach somebody. People fall into a lot of categories, but essentially for me, they fall into two categories. They're the doers or thinkers, the people that do, they like to have wins, they like to feel like they've done something well, mm -hmm. but the moment they check out, the moment their nervous system says, I'm too tired, they mm -hmm. stop doing it well. And if you've told them to do 10 reps of a thing and they only do it well twice and then they gas out, they won't stop at two. They'll do eight shitty reps. Yeah. And guess what? The nervous system remembers those shitty reps. It doesn't remember the two fresh, great reps they did. No, they it remember the, the eight bad. Eight reps. Yeah. And doers are essentially people that have a lot of grit. They're the ones that put the it in grit. Mm -hmm. They hate themselves when they go to war, like they go to war, it's endurance, right? It's always endurance athletes too. They <laughs> hate themselves so much that they go to war with their bodies. They go to war with their minds. They've just got to slam themselves in the gym when they're training, when they're recovering, they're working hard. I'm like, bro, what are you doing? You got to chill. So when they learn how to paper that back, they start having more wins because they're actually doing high quality like they're getting a high quality stimulus, which yields a high quality adaptation rather mm -hmm. than just doing stimulus after stimulus and their body's like, I am getting there, I promise, but holy shit, this hurts. And then there are the thinkers, the, the ones that love to learn, but the moment they come up against the barrier, throw everything in the air, I can't do this, this shit, I can't do this, right? So microdose stimulus by saying, hey, take a step away from the problem. Look at what you've learned so far. Everything that you've learned so far culminates to a moment, a focal point that will help you get through this barrier. Look at maths. If I just give you an equal sign and the number six, like anyone will sit there and go three plus three. Well, how do you know three plus three is six, right? If you've never seen a mathematical equation before, I go equal six. You'll look at it and go, huh? Yeah. Of course, because you haven't learned the framework behind it. But where I step in, is I show people that even though equals six is the problem, the problem is actually in the solution. It could be three plus three. It could be 18 divided by three. Mm -hmm. It could be 600 divided by 10. Uh, sorry, 600 divided by 100. All these things culminate to the same answer, which means that the problem that you're faced with isn't just a one solution problem. You just have one set of tools potentially to get through the problem. I might have five. 
So it's always good to step back and say, hey, I've got this problem and I've been beating my hands against the wall and I, I need a little bit of help. Mm-hmm. Because if you, if you ask the question and you ask it enough, you'll realize people want to learn and people want to teach. And you'll start going, oh, I'm looking at all these tools. The next time you see equals six, you go, oh, that might be three minus uh, th- nine minus three. And then someone comes along and goes, nine minus three, how does that work? And you say, oh, it's quite simple. And then you become the teacher. Someone might come along and say, oh, that's fucking 15 minus nine. And you're like, 15 minus nine, that's weird. And then they show you and you go, wow, it is 15 minus nine. Holy shit, it's still equals six. So we learn a lot. We can learn a lot from that small example using mm-hmm. maths. We can learn a lot from the thinkers and we can learn a lot from the doers. But ultimately, those people need to want to step back and get a bit of perspective. And it's only in stepping back you get perspective. If your face is hard up against the problem, you've got tunnel vision on the problem. If you're hard up against a brick wall that's five meters long, mm. your peripheral vision is filled with brick wall. If you take two steps back, you're an edge to either side. And then I'll be there saying, hey, did you know you could walk around that? And you'll go, oh, I feel like the biggest idiot. Like, well, don't feel like an idiot. Just don't stand with your nose against the problem. Mm-hmm. Take some steps back. And that's another thing I learned doing theater and doing improv. The, the more you step back from the, the problem, the more you see. If you just bull rush your way through it, you're only seeing what's in front of your eyes and you're trying not to trip over your feet. If you step back, you will find allies standing there looking at the problem from a different way, thinking, hey, how are we going to get this? Oh, hey, such and such, I didn't see you there. What do you think? And mm-hmm. then you start to build allies. Uh, and that's really powerful. Yeah, yeah, that's a great lesson. And it's professionally serving you, but also like personally serving you. And I really, really like that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. This is a completely independent podcast that has been created to share the journey and lessons of top level sporting professionals, but also your everyday lover of sport. If you liked this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you could leave a review and share it with someone who you think would also enjoy it. Until next time.